Welcome to the Untold Civil War Podcast. I've got a great episode coming up. But before I get started, I have noticed that there is a discrepancy between podcast listens and YouTube views. Let me remind those of you who love listening to these episodes that there's a whole Untold Civil War YouTube channel with video content. These videos are separate content from what you're getting on here, so you are missing out. On there, you'll see part two of last month's episode with Ron Coddington. You'll see the unique images I have for sale and some unique images from Mr. Coddington's own collection. So if you haven't already, use the link in the show notes to go to the YouTube channel, click the subscribe button, and don't miss out on any further untold Civil War. And now, sling your rifled musket, pick up your knapsack, and let's march into some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War. I'm sitting with Taylor Bishop, the expert on the Battle of Tebbs Bend and the Spartans uh, of the day. So thank you for coming on the show. I've seen you give tours on Tebbs Bend before. Uh, you come highly recommended by you know Daryl Smith and Derek Lindo. So thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, especially to those guys for uh, suggesting me. I feel very honored to, to be on this podcast. Thank you just so much. Well, let's kick it off. So uh, how long have you been studying the Civil War? And, you know, when did the Civil War bug bite you? I mean, that's kind of something that we all like to talk about. So, I mean, I've been studying the Civil War for as long as I can remember. Um, in fact, I think my first tour, I was actually in a baby stroller at uh, Perryville. Of course, I didn't understand anything of what was going on, but, you know, I was on the battlefield. But the time that the Civil War bug really bit me really hard, uh, I would probably say, is the time my grandmother took me out to Mill Springs during the 150th cycle. And just being able to see a cannon shoot after that happened, that's, that's when I was hooked. I mean, I, after that, that's, I've been in, involved with it uh, forever since then. So. so what projects do you have going on right now in regards to Civil War related? Uh, so right now, working on stuff with Tebbs Bend. Uh, we're doing the 160th Camp Hobson series where it is basically videos on Instagram and Facebook on our pages there talking about Camp Hobson, which was in Tabs Bend. It was a union training camp uh, from about October of 1861 to about February to March of 1862. You know, it was very important for Tabs Bend's history, and so that's what we're focusing in on right now since the 160th cycle. We're doing some articles, tons of stuff. I mean, we, we also have a night ride in... October uh, that you can find the information on on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Uh, so yeah, we've got tons of projects going on at Tebsman all the time. Great stuff. And I mean, moving forward from there, we really want to talk about the topic of the day, you know, the battle at oh, Tebs yeah. Bend, you know, this is this is great stuff. Just for people who might not know, can you talk about the location of Tebs Bend and sort of paint the scene like what was happening on the ground that set up the uh, battle? Yeah, okay. So uh, Tebbs Bend is located in Taylor County. The battle was fought along the Green River. It was fought in two different kind of locations, very close to each other. Uh, you have the main battle of uh, Tebbs Bend with, of course, the 25th Michigan and Morgan's Veteran Division. And kind of talk about the terrain, if you will, uh, to kind of give you an idea of what it kind of looks like, uh, especially if you don't have a map or give, have a good idea of what Tebbs Bend looks like. It looks like an hourglass. The more you get close to the center, the tighter it gets. And that's 
uh, all due to the federal commander there, Orlando H. Moore. He's basically that weird nerd that really loves to go in depth and create stuff. And I mean, he literally, in my opinion, he created that battle. He wanted Morgan to attack, if that makes sense. And we'll get into that uh, later on. The other location is along the Green River Bridge. That is where, of course, the Ninth Corps men and the only veteran Federals to fight in the Battle of Tepsiman were at. That includes the 8th Michigan and the 79th New York Highlanders. Well, let's get into that. You know, you, you've mentioned okay. the 8th Michigan and the 79th New York, my one of my favorite regiments, although, you know, I'm sitting here wearing my alma mater, the 69th, but I do love the Highlanders. Let's talk about the opposing forces. So on the Union side, what sort of soldiers are we looking at? So uh, the majority of the federal soldiers here at Tebbs Bend, uh, we have about, in total number, fighting men, uh, 210 men. That's it. About 170 or so are from the 25th Michigan, who are a mixed immigrant regiment like most Midwest regiments in the Civil War. They are green. They've never been in combat before. They were actually soldiers sent down from Louisville, Kentucky. They were known as the White Glove Regiment in the city because they were so always polished. They always wore white gloves. That's the majority of the federal fighting force out here. And their commander is Orlando H. Moore, who is an abolitionist. And he caused a little controversy in the city of Louisville when he broke up several slave auctions. And he was using his power as a federal commander in there uh, to break them up. And of course, uh, Jeremiah T. Boyle, his superior, did not like that. He was also a Kentuckian, Boyle was, and of course, sent more out of the uh, the city. So the 25th Michigan kind of round up about 170 or so men, all green, never been in combat before. Some of them don't even speak English. Uh, and one interesting thing that we usually kind of mention here at Tebbs Bend is that Moore is a bugle player. And rather than having to learn a Dutch language, which some were the majority of the men that couldn't speak English, uh, he just used the bugle to teach them how to do marches, drills, and so on and so forth. And so that plays a big part in the, uh, the battle, which we'll get to later. The other men, those 40 or so men from the 9th Corps, 8th Michigan, and 79th New York, were sent as a detail to repair the Green River Bridge, which was destroyed by Morgan in his Christmas raid. Uh, they had spent the majority of the summer trying to repair it, but in one day, a huge flood came through, tore the bridge, and... During the, uh, the opening stages of the battle, they had to quit building on the bridge. Their commander, the guy who's commanding them, is an engineer and a very cocky lieutenant by the name of Michael A. Hogan. He is a very interesting character when it comes into uh, Tebbs Bend. Kind of switching over to the Confederates, you have about 2,500 veteran cavalrymen under the command of John Hunt Morgan, or in uh, Daryl Smith's terms, John Morgan, but... It's usually a joke me and him have with each other. Uh, so those 2,500 men are separated into two brigades. The first brigade is commanded by Basil W. Duke, Morgan's brother-in-law. And the second brigade is Adam R. Johnson, also known as Stovepipe Johnson, which I believe if some of your viewers may remember an episode on him with Derek. And so he's commanding a second brigade. Uh, and those are some of the, that's basically the soldiers who fought. Uh, here at Tebbs Bend. Perfect. Perfect. Um, yes, I definitely got schooled on that as well during my interview with Daryl Smith. <laughs> um, but going back to what you were talking about, so the 79th Highlanders and the 8th Michigan, mm -hmm. that's not the entire regiment, yeah. right? I, I just want to get that, that no. sorted, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the entire regiment. So during about June, about May to June uh, of 1863, the 
8th Michigan, 79th New York were stationed at Tebbs Bend, uh, the majority of the regiment. But eventually the 9th Corps was called away to go to Vicksburg and Colonel Morrison decided to detach about 20 or so men from his regiment and 20 or so men from the 79th New York, basically guys that had experience uh, in building or engineer work of some kind to uh, help repair the bridge. And they would actually hire on civilian contractors from uh, Michigan as well. But yeah, not the majority of the regiment, just 40 men from both regiments and mixed companies as well. The soldiers that stayed behind, were they just chosen at random or did they have something like they were injured and so they had to stay behind a little bit? I would probably say that we don't know 100% sure, but more than likely, they're guys who know how to build stuff. Uh, they were having to build a uh, covered bridge. So definitely somebody that has some kind of experience with that. Kind of helps that the 79th New York is, of course, raised from New York City. So I'm sure a lot of those guys had experience with some kind of dock working or building of some kind. Um, now, that's just a hunch, but more than likely people who had experience in engineer work, uh, not sick or were chosen at random. So I'm kind of getting the picture here that uh, the Union soldiers were there sort of working on that bridge and... Mm -hmm. just repairing that bridge after that disaster. But what were the Confederates doing? What was their goal? So to kind of give the layout of what's about to happen, you know, you have on July 3rd of 1863, Morgan's command has just won a victory at the Battle of Columbia, where he destroys an entire little federal force there, about 150 or so men. Uh, he moves up into the Cane Valley region, which is south of Tebbs Bend. During the night, Morgan is going to send out his elite scouting unit known as Quirk Scouts. Now, it's interesting to note one of the reasons why the Battle of Tebspin happens the way it does. Quirk Scouts was originally commanded by Tom Quirk, who unfortunately was wounded during the opening stages of the Great Raid and had to have a replacement taken over because he was so severely wounded. Unfortunately, that replacement was wounded in the Battle of Columbia. And then another replacement for the replacement had to step up by the name of Tom Franks. Tom Franks has no idea how to do scouting effectively as a commander, get the right intel, but Morgan has to continue on with this great raid no matter what, so he has to send him out uh, to scout out the federal forces in uh, in the Tepsman region. Based on what we know about Tom Franks and what he does, we know that Franks kind of says that the federals are busy as beavers. He knew that the federals were digging in uh, in the Tebsbend area. See, and that, that, that'll lead me into my next point a little bit, but Tom Franks, his scouting is not the best out there. It basically allows Morgan to think that he can take his 2,500-man cavalry division inside Tebsbend, easily overwhelm the Federals, and continue on to his great raid. But uh, as we're going to come to figure out, that is not the case. Now, the Federals who were digging in, uh, that would be the 25th Michigan, about 170 or so men. They are literally turning in the what is called the Narrows, where the main battle is fought into basically a fortress. They are building Abaste, they are building rifle pits, they are building breastworks, you name it, they're building it. Uh, they actually built the moat right in front of their main line, and of course in front of Abaste as well. So I mean, more the guy who's building this, he knows what's about to happen. He knows that Morgan's more than likely going to be coming to attack him. And at the same time, you have Hogan's boys, those 40 men, 8th Michigan, 79th New York, they are going to be possibly, we aren't 100% sure, but they are more than likely going to be erecting breastworks of some kind along their front. Uh, see the Green River Bridge, 
was overlooked by a huge bluff. And one thing I usually in my tours kind of make mention of is that the 79th New York has been in a situation like this once before. They were in the Battle of Antietam, more specifically Burnside's Bridge. And uh, they kind of faced the same obstacles, but in the opposite here at Tebbs Bend, where they are now the force on a huge bluff protecting a bridge. Uh, so they are probably going to be building some kind of breastworks of some kind. They actually built a stone wall along what was left of the bridge they had and up along the bluff, either which way. Now, one thing I do want to mention is that, you know, if your viewers are listening to these numbers that, you know, the Confederates have 2,500 men, the Federals have about 210, and they're wondering how in the world do the Federals pull a victory off here? I mean, when you're faced with no reinforcements with the 30, within a 30-mile radius, you can't retreat from the battlefield or otherwise you're going to look like a coward. You know, those are some pretty stiff things to make soldiers say, well, I mean, it's either better we die here or, or we don't face off as cowards, you know. Um, so that's kind of the general idea of where the Federals are at uh, and somewhat of the story that's about to happen. Can we get into that the, when you talk about those odds, right, against the, yeah. the, the Highlanders and the other Union soldiers? That did not go unnoticed by newspapers, right? I mean, they were no. described as Spartans, and, and they used other terms, right, to describe these guys. Oh, yeah. The Louisville, I believe it was the Louisville Daily Journal, uh, had compared the 25th Michigan and their fight in the Battle of Tebbs Bend. Uh, they were kind of hinting towards the Spartans at Thermopylae, you know, with those 300 men who held off the Persian army. Yeah, the Persian army in that battle. Uh, which, you know, is really kind of cool, especially for Civil War nerds. We don't really get that little Roman history kind of stuff coming in and just to be able to read that kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the newspapers definitely ate it up. But one thing to kind of keep in mind is that at the time of the Battle of Tebbs Bend, which is fought on July the 4th, what other big events are going on? You have the uh, fall of Vicksburg, Robert E. Lee's retreat from Gettysburg, uh, and the succession of the Tullahoma campaign. So what little newspaper coverage we do have on the Battle of Tesman is definitely great, uh, but not as compared to those three bigger uh, campaigns and battles. You know. Well, I, I think the listeners want to hear the, hear the story now. Can we get to the actual engagement? Let's, what happens? <laughs> awesome. So uh, after the reconnaissance was over, Morgan's basically going to send about a force of about 200 Confederates. Uh, under the command of Roy S. Kluke, that is the 8th Kentucky and 10th Kentucky Partisan Rangers, during the night on a huge flanking maneuver. He's going to, his idea is to basically box in the Federals at Tebbs Bend, cut off their only line of retreat, which is where the Highlanders are defending. Those Confederates make it into position around early in the morning, close to possibly around 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and it was also during that time frame uh, Moore is going to move his camp, which was in the lowlands of Tebbs Bend. He crossed the Green River Ford below the bridge. He's going to be doing this maneuver during the night. And it's kind of important because there's a sergeant who is accidentally left in a house, the Sublet House, who is deathly ill. His name, his name was Sergeant Merle. He was left, and he is going to wake up in the early in the morning and realize everybody has left. And so he's going to start running and accidentally gets captured by the Confederates. It's going to be taken to Morgan. And his story uh, is really big later on, and I'm going to mention that later on because it's it kind of tells why the battle ends so abruptly. So to kind of get into the battle, you have early in the morning around 4 o'clock, you're going to have elements of Morgan's division uh, moving up the uh, Tebsman columbia Road. They're going to hit into Company I, who are kind of known now as the Flying Dutchman. 
of the Battle of Tebsfin because they are the Dutch company. Nobody in that company speaks a lick of English whatsoever. They hit that company first. And of course, you're going to have the dance, if you will, where soldiers are going to start falling back, moving forward, basically trying to figure out what the other is doing. And so that company falls back. Now, it's important to note the fortification lines that Moore had set up. He had set up a front rifle pit and then dug parallel trenches on the sides of those to the main line. Company I fell back to that first rifle pit. And see, the rifle pit was supposed to be a draw for the Confederates to come in, to see that, think, oh, that is where the Federals are. If we easily take that, we've won the battle. So the Confederates get on top of a ridge not too far away from the rifle pit, probably about 100 yards or so, and begin to fire into the rifle pit. They maybe launch a few shots, uh, and then in classic Morgan fashion, he's going to send a courier up to the Federals, tell them to surrender, which doesn't really happen. Uh, Moore is one of those guys that will fight to the bitter end no matter what. Uh, and this is one thing we usually kind of say on our tours here, that this is what Moore had said to Morgan. I present my compliments to General Morgan and say to him that this being the fourth day of July, I cannot entertain his proposition uh, to surrender. Kind of sounds like that Independence Day speech, you know, like right before fighting the alien, you know? And so it kind of, from there on, you know, Morgan decides, okay, fine, we can easily take these guys in a matter of maybe a couple of minutes. So he's going to give the overall attack to Adam R. Johnson of the 2nd Brigade. And it's important to mention that Adam R. Johnson did not want to attack at Tebbs Bend. It's not that he's not a fighter. He saw just how bad of an idea it was, especially seeing that there were dug in Federals at a very narrow strip. And it's also important to mention the Confederates going into this fight, uh, it was recorded that they only had about seven to six shots. This battle lasts about four hours. And so those shots, you know, seven to six rounds in intense combat does not last long, especially in Civil War combat. Adamar Johnson, nevertheless, is going to be told by Morgan, basically ordered that he's going to have to attack regardless. Uh, he's going to commit at least three regiments, that being the 7th Kentucky, 5th Kentucky, and the 11th Kentucky Cavalries, uh, numbering anywhere from about 900 to 1,000 Confederates. So the odds uh, for the Federals are four or five for the Confederates to one, which is kind of astronomical when you think about it. Like, if I was a Federal, I would not want to face up against those odds. Uh, but anyways, the Confederates go ahead and attack probably around launching the first attack, probably around 7.30. And to kind of make a long story short, the Confederates launch about seven attacks repetitively, seven charges over and over again. They take the rifle pit, and as soon as they take the rifle pit in that first charge, uh, many of them realize we've made a grievous mistake because now we see that there is about a less than 100 yards difference from the rifle pit to the main line, and it's filled with Abistay moats, tripwire, stuff like that, and they have to try to attack through that uh, to get to it. Every single charge that happens fails miserably, but it's the last two charges that get the most intense, in my opinion. Uh, you have in the sixth charge, the seventh Kentucky, which is on the Confederate right flank, Federal left flank, their position is along the Green River Bluff. The river's right below them. Uh, several of their companies are able to kind of rock climb around the bluff and start inflating the federal companies uh, in the main lines. Uh, this kind of causes those companies in that sector to kind of fall back. But thankfully, due to many of those junior officers in the companies, they fix bayonets 
and they charge at those companies that, that were infiltrating them. And there are many accounts of where the Federals hit the Confederate bodies so hard, they were able to pick them up and throw them off the bluff and into the river just by like bayonet, cold steel, nothing else. That caused the Confederates to think, oh gosh, these guys are really you know, here to fight. Uh, and it was during the seventh charge, Morgan is starting to get really impatient because now he's starting to lose a lot of time during the day. Uh, and he is going to look to his favorite colonel who's always at the rear guard for him. This is David W. Chenault of the 11th Kentucky. He is the guy that you can give a job and he is going to get it done. Uh, 100% doesn't matter. Um, Chenault is leading a force of about 400 Confederate Kentuckians. He's going to lead them down a, I guess you can say a swell on the Confederate left flank, federal right flank. He is going to be given the task to finish up this battle uh, because Morgan realizes that possibly after the sixth charge that if they continue to possibly hit the flanks, the Federals will just crush and cave in. So he is going to send Chenault on this charge, and Moore, who is on top of this hill, sees uh, Chenault's men getting into position, and he looks to Company I, uh, their captain's Martin DeBeau, and he's going to tell Martin to deploy his flying Dutchman in a skirmish formation, possibly five to ten paces away from each other, each man, uh, to protect the federal right flank. And one thing I do want to mention is that when your right flank is commanded by a skirmish line, that is when it's getting very serious. Um, you do not want to have your right flank protected by just maybe about 40 to 30 men facing up against about 400. You know, that's, that's pretty bad, especially for those kind of odds. But anyways, the, the Federals get into position. They're ordered to hold their fire until the Confederates were within about pistol shot range. You're looking at about 30 to one yard, somewhere around there. I mean, it's close. And they're ordered to fix bayonets as well. And so uh, Chenault is going to lead his men on horseback up this bluff. You can kind of imagine, uh, kind of imagine glory when the uh, 54th Massachusetts is, is charging up Fort Wagner. Kind of imagine that. Chenault is going to be leading his men. He's going to probably get in about maybe 20 yards away from the main federal line until he's going to be shot. And to kind of reference glory yet again, uh, that scene, particularly when Robert Gushaw is shot and everybody that sees it is just purely shocked. Whenever the Confederates see that, they immediately start losing hope because Chenault is one of those morale officers. He, Whenever he comes onto the field, he's able to get everybody up to be able to do things they never thought they could be able to do. And to be able to see Chenault shot and killed instantly, they start to lose faith. Major McCurry of the 11th Kentucky uh, sees this happening and he's going to try to take control of the situation because he realizes the Federals have a skirmish line just facing them. And if he can get his men to attack just a little bit further, they can break the Federal lines. Uh, he's going to tell a Captain Treble, who is now in second command of the regiment, to lead his men up against the breastworks. He charges maybe within about five yards. He's shot in the head, dies instantly. This further just eludes the 11th Kentucky's resolve to really even fight uh, anymore. The 5th Kentucky, who is in the center of the federal lines, start to realize that the 11th is not pushing their attack. And so they send Major Brent on horseback over to where the 11th is. He gets maybe within maybe 30 yards from the 11th Kentucky line, and then he's going to be shot and killed immediately. And so what's happening, one thing that really happens in this battle that just wrecks 
Morgan's division is the killing and the command structure. You know, those colonels, those captains, those lieutenants who are able to push their men beyond their breaking point are taking hits. And whenever that happens, especially in the earlier part of a raid, that's not really good because you need those captains, those colonels, those lieutenants later on who were able to get jobs done. Now, I had mentioned a Sergeant Merle. Now, whenever he was captured by the Confederates, he's going to be taken to Morgan, and he's going to tell Morgan that their regiment that's inside Tebbs Bend is being reinforced by a regiment of cavalry and artillery. Now, Morgan doesn't really believe this, and it isn't until more on the opposite end bugles reinforcements on the bugle and then everybody all the federals along the line scream out reinforcements and morgan who is not really on the field to be able to see what's going on all the way thinks that the game is up and he is going to tell his men that or rather he's going to realize that the battle is lost for them and they have to pull back and so they slowly fall back uh now the 25th Michigan never received any reinforcements. It was actually the last reserve Moore had. It was 20 men, but they were able to fool the Confederates into thinking it was a regiment of cavalry and, uh, and a battery. I mean, I imagine those 20 men thinking, like, hey, we just, we just did that to the Confederates. And so the Confederates fall back, but that's not the end of the, uh, the Battle of Chaps Bend. You're going to have, after this happened, if you remember me mentioning Kluke a little bit earlier, during his flanking maneuver, his basic orders from Morgan was to basically block the road and to gobble up the Yankees if we, uh, when we win this victory. Now, of course, we know the Confederates don't win, but Kluke doesn't have any reliable information coming from Morgan at that point in time when the battle is immediately over. He hears the gunshots cease on the main line and thinks immediately that they've just won a victory. So he sends immediately his force up about 200 Confederate Kentuckians out towards the bridge, and this is where those Highlanders and Michiganers are hiding along the bluff. They wait till the Confederates are within about 40 yards away, and then they open up on them with deadly accuracy uh, and force them to fall back. And whenever Kluke falls back, he finally gets word uh, from Morgan that they've just lost the battle and they have to retreat. And from there, uh, that's really and truly the end of the Battle of Tebbs Bend in a very short manner. No, I, I love it. I mean, from the, you know, 4th of July speech to the, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the bugle sounding. Um, and just to clarify something. So when they played the bugles for reinforcements and those yeah. 20 guys come up, mm-hmm. was that planned? Were they planning to use that as a deception or were they honestly saying, hey, the last 20 guys are moving up and it just so happened that they thought it was, you know, a regiment of cavalry and artillery? <laughs> I honestly think it was one of those things that was planned on the spot. You know, I think everybody in the regiment knew that there were 20 other men that had not been used just yet. Now, Moore had told his men, you know, whenever I have the call of reinforcements, definitely scream reinforcements to fool the enemy. Uh, But that was kind of planned right there on the battlefield. It wasn't like, you know, they're all huddling together the night before on July the 3rd. And Moore says, okay, at this exact time, you're going to do it. It was kind of Listen, guys, whenever I say reinforcements, you guys scream. Now, we have to take a moment to recognize our sponsors. The first is Civil War Trails, an awesome organization that helps small communities mark, preserve, and interpret their Civil War sites. Please use the link in the show notes to gain access to this amazing outdoor museum. As the holidays are coming up, 
This is a great resource to use when planning your next family outing, which will be away from the electronics, educationally enriching, and most entertaining. That's great. That's great. I love it. When we talk about the aftermath of the battle, can you, you get into <laughs> that? What happened right after the battle uh, in regard to Morgan and, and also those Union uh, commanders? But also, what lasting effect do you think that this battle has on the Civil War? And why should we be studying or, or reading about this battle? Okay, uh, so after the battle was concluded, Morgan is not really going to be able to collect his dead, which is kind of a problem for today because we still don't know 100% how many casualties the Confederates suffered. There are casualty figures from about 100 to 200 or so. We will probably never know uh, 100% the full number of casualties. Uh, but the Confederates that are left out on the fields, they're going to be picked up by the Federals after the battle. They're going to be buried in a huge mass pit. The sad part, in my opinion, is the local families that have sons uh, in Morgan's Calvary. They are coming out onto the battlefield afterwards trying to see if they can't find their son or their father or their uncle. Um, in a lot of cases, they weren't able to if they, uh, if they were able to make it out. The Federals they will be able to collect their dead. They only suffer out of the 170 that were engaged in the main fight. They only suffer less than 30 casualties, while the Confederates, with about anywhere from 900 to 1,000 actively engaged, uh, they suffer anywhere, again, from 100 to 200 casualties. Really stiff casualty figures uh, when you look down into it. But Morgan, nevertheless, is going to pull back uh, from the main line. He's going to use the same route the Confederates who did the flanking maneuver, he's going to use their same route and continue on to Campbellsville and then continue on into the Great Raid. Uh, and this kind of really made those Confederate officers who thought it was just a waste uh, of their men kind of put a little bit of friction within the command structure. Definitely something to think about, too. Whenever you're just beginning in the raid, now you're starting to think, is this guy legitimate, you know? But the Federals, after the battle, don't stay in Tebsman for too much longer. They have to leave because they have grievously wounded men and they can't fix them out in the field. Dr. Gregg, who did a fabulous job uh, under his tutelage, no wounded man died. Seriously, that were if they were seriously wounded, they didn't make it. But the majority of the men, uh, I believe, except for two, died. They uh, And that's two that died, not everybody else. Um, so the regiment will pass. One thing I do want to mention, they stored a lot of their wounded in the Sublet House, which is currently in, in preservation efforts right now, which we're trying to do at Tebspin. I uh, definitely look to our Facebook and Instagram for that kind of information. But the regiment will leave the Sublet House a couple of days after the battle. They make their way to Lebanon and are immediately looked upon as heroes because at the time, every Kentuckian believed that Morgan was heading to Louisville, to sack Louisville. Now we know today, of course, Morgan was going to go into Indiana and Ohio. Back then, they didn't really know that at that time. And so Moore is, it's really interesting what happens to Moore. I think that's one thing I'm going to focus on the most of is that Moore is, I believe, the hero of this battle. But it's interesting to know what happens after. He is uh, celebrated by the Kentucky government for helping prevent Lowell from being sacked, which again, we know wasn't going to happen. Uh, he is actually going to be given a set of China for it. Uh, everybody, all the newspapers are loving him. But whenever he goes to his commander in Louisville, Jeremiah T. Boyle, guess what he is met with? 
a court-martial. Out of everything, he's met with a court-martial. They are basically trumped up charges that he left his camp, that he retreated from his camp later on. Basically, Jeremiah T. Boyle was still mad at Moore uh, for disrupting the slave trade in Louisville and was going to just try to destroy this guy's career whenever it was just starting up. But luckily for Moore, those charges are just going to be dismissed, and it's not really going to be come out of anything. And to kind of answer your other question, why should we remember Tebspin? Uh, we should remember Tebspin for a lot of reasons. You know, men gave their lives out here. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. One man I usually mention the most is George Hicks, and he was in the 25th Michigan. George Hicks was a 21-year-old father who had an 18-month-old baby back at home in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Unfortunately, George Hicks gave his last breath at Tebsbin. He died. And I think it is important that we remember the men like George Hicks, because to me, he embodies what the Civil War soldier was, that man who left his family, believed in whatever he believed in, and gave his all for whatever he believed in. Um, and I think we should just, you know, continue to remember men like him and come out to battles and learn. Um, and to kind of bounce off of that is, you know, look at the number differences, 2,500 Confederates versus 210 Federals. In every single military mind, the Confederates should have won just based off of pure muscle alone. But being able to come to Tebspin to learn those unique little things where the Confederates don't have enough ammunition, they don't actually want to attack, or the terrain is against them, uh, it's it's very important to be able to learn that and to think that and to know, rather, uh, that numbers don't justify a victory whatsoever. You know, the Federals here came with a plan and executed it perfectly, where the Confederates, they just kind of showed up and thought, hey, we're actually going to win. Absolutely. I think this is a great example of what you just described as far as the studies of military history of how a smaller force can defeat a much larger force. I think also it's important to study this battle for what you mentioned as well, is that the loss of Morgan's trusted officers would definitely affect probably his later campaigns, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so it's kind of the thing that we often look at, too, as far as in bigger battles like in Chancellorsville, where Robert E. Lee lost tons of junior officers, colonels that, in my opinion, certainly affected how the Gettysburg campaign uh, would eventually pan out because when you don't have those experienced guys, when you really need them, like in the Battle of Gettysburg, things can go south very quickly. And that's what happened with Morgan's men after the Battle of Tespin. You know, there's going to be a lack of discipline. There's going to be um, not being able to follow orders all the way. And it, it certainly affected uh, how his division was able to run afterwards. This show is made possible by my patrons over on Patreon. If you too wish to become a Patreon supporter, please use the link in the show notes, and not only will you gain access to a multitude of exclusive benefits, but you will also be entered for a raffle. The drawing will be in January, kicking off Season 3. And the prize? Well, it will be an original CDV of a Union soldier. You won't want to miss out. If a monthly subscription is too much, though, you can also make a one-time donation using the PayPal link in the show notes. All support is appreciated. It's obvious that you've done a lot of research and you're passionate on this topic. I know, you know, as historians, as, you know, these history buffs, we always go back to those primary sources. You know, what primary sources have you been using to tell this story? So a great thing about Tebspin is that we were 
blessed with several things. The 25th Michigan wrote a book on their experiences uh, and really focused in on Tebspin. It's called The Story of the 25th Michigan Infantry, written by a uh, Lieutenant Travis. Uh, he was actually engaged in the Battle of Tebspin, and he gives some very interesting and vivid accounts of the battle that we're able to draw from. On our website, the Tebspin Battlefield Association, uh, you can actually read letters from the field where we have letters from soldiers who fought in the battle, and they kind of detail what they thought. Um, they gave some interesting accounts of the Confederates and of the Federals and their experiences there as well. And I would say if anyone is interested in reading a lot more into the Battle of Tebspin, getting to know more of it, definitely read Morgan is Coming uh, by Betty Jane Gorin. Uh, that is the go-to book to read. It has everything from Morgan's Christmas raid coming through the region to the battle and what happens afterwards. Awesome. I'll have to get a copy for myself. Can you talk about, because you're talking about the preservation efforts, can you talk about how much of the battlefield is left for people to see? So we have about a little over 150 acres preserved. Now, that is the Kentucky Nature Preserve area where we do have trails, and that section mainly covers the flanking maneuver where Kluge fought against the uh, 9th Corps men and got whipped very quickly. That is the most preserved spot on the battlefield, but you can still go see the main battlefield site. A lot of the land is interesting enough still owned by those families who were there during the Civil War, so um, not a whole lot of it has been touched, uh, maybe a few spots few parts here and there but you can definitely come out there's signage to be able to come out to read to be able to understand the battle as well as youtube videos and facebook videos to be able to understand but yeah there's there's enough to be able to kind of spend a good afternoon or a good day depending on how much you want to get in depth uh, to come out to tebsman to see and you know just going off that because i know you've been on the battlefield and you've walked it and you've given tours how important would you tell people it is to actually go to the battlefield to actually understand what was happening. Very important. You know, you can read everything there is about the Battle of Tebbs Bend, uh, or any battle, really, rather. But until you don't get, once you get out on the battlefield, you're able to see what those soldiers are talking about. You're able to come out and see how steep the bluffs were for the Confederates to have to attack. You're able to see how the terrain helped the Federals win the victory. Uh, you're not able to see that really and truly on a map that we have you know you're once you come out you're able to understand everything full circle rather than just from one view fantastic and finally could you just tell people how can they learn more about you you've mentioned the facebook and instagram but can you just plug yourself how can they learn about you the association tebs bend all of that good stuff yeah so uh you know i'm a high school student but i have been interested in the civil war for a while and uh, i have been blessed with being able to get into with the American Battlefield Trust Youth Leadership Team, which I suggest to any aspiring young uh, Civil War historian, Revolutionary War historian, or War of 1812 uh, historian to get into. And it certainly gives you a lot of advantages uh, in being able, if you want to pursue a career in history, gives you some great connections with some awesome people. Uh, you're able to have some awesome experiences with that. For me personally, um, you know, I'm helping out with Tebbs Bend. Uh, as well as Perryville Battlefield. Both of them are close to home to me. You know, I run, I help run the Tebspin Facebook and Instagram page. Uh, I help do a, um, a tributary page to Perryville. So yeah, I'm, I'm just about in everything. I've 
written articles for the Western Theater page, which if you haven't checked out, I certainly suggest uh, they've got some great tours, great articles, great info uh, to learn more about the Western Theater overall. And I'll definitely leave links uh, in the show notes for people to access all of that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. All righty. Be safe and bye for now. I hope you enjoyed that episode while you wrapped Christmas presents, sipped on some hot chocolate, charging Mary's Heights, besieging Fort Stevens, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of Christmas gifts, have you got a Civil War buff in the family? A reenactor? A fan of the Untold Civil War podcast? Well, you are going to want to do your shopping at The Badge Maker, great friend and sponsor of the show. He is the maker of quality Civil War ID discs and core badges. He also produces amazing stickers that are based on period illustrations. There are plenty sticker companies out there, but none have done the intense research to produce such quality and unique items. These stickers will allow you to flaunt your Civil War nerd self on your laptop, locker, or even your school notebooks. Link in the show notes. Now stay warm, bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.